Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm here in David Copperfield's home. I don't even know if you'd call it a home. I don't know if you'd call it a state. I don't even know if you'd call it a museum, a compound. It's absolutely extraordinary. One of the most, if not the most beautiful homes I've ever been in in my life. We're here on location in Las Vegas and I'm sitting here waiting for David to come in and as I look around I always think about what I'm going to say and before I start I just want to thank you all so much because without all your support I wouldn't have a chance to even have the opportunity to be able to sit down and talk with David Copperfield and as I sit here and look at all the memorabilia around me and all these incredible, incredible pieces of historical magic, I think about something that David Copperfield personifies that I think is the rarest of the rare. I mean, this is a guy who has been number one in his field for over three decades well over three decades there hasn't been one year where this guy hasn't been setting world records and blowing people away always reinventing always changing always one-upping himself according to forbes this is a guy who's one of the wealthiest entertainers in the world obviously you don't get there without being the most successful at your craft And when you're on a list right after George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Oprah, and Michael Jordan, and you're number five on that list, and you've been doing it for over 30 
years. There's something they said for that. Many people out there that you've heard say this phrase, it's not getting there, it's staying there that's difficult. My uncle was the number one expert on Houdini in the world. He dedicated his life. And if you were to talk to David in all his humility, he would tell you that Houdini was a guy who broke down the walls to make it possible for people like himself to do what he does. But if you talk to somebody like me or many people out there in magic, or even my uncle who was witness to Houdini and David Copperfield, be the first one to tell you that David is doing things that no other magician and no other entertainer has ever done in the world. And that's why he sells more tickets than any solo act out there in the world, including people like Sinatra, Michael Jackson, and Elvis. To put it in perspective of what it means to work even harder than you did to get to number one. This is a guy who did 638 shows last year. This is a guy that doesn't have to work ever again. He did 638 shows. He did them because he knows what it takes to stay number one. And that's constantly working harder than you possibly can imagine. Reinventing, recrafting, doing a different trick over and over again until you perfect it and then moving on to the next one. That's what David Copperfield's all about. Staying there because he already got there. And I think if you look at wherever you work and whatever you're doing with that kind of philosophy... I can only imagine that you have the possibility of having the kind of career that David Copperfield has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is like a dream come true, everybody. Sitting across from David Copperfield and being able to be on the cusp of interviewing him is a really special moment for me. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce him. And hopefully one of his many assistants will come in here afterwards and shake him and wake him up a little bit and we'll be ready to go. <laughs> All right, here goes. David Copperfield has been named the Magician of the Millennium. He is the first living illusionist to be honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He was knighted by the French government is the winner of 21 Emmy Awards for his groundbreaking television specials, was awarded a Living Legend Award by the U.S. Library of Congress, holds 11 Guinness World Book Records. 
is featured on postage stamps from six different countries and has sold more tickets than any other solo entertainer in history. As an only child, Copperfield was born in 1956 as David Kotkin in Metuchen, New Jersey, a shy kid who overcame insecurity with the help of magic. David was already an accomplished conjurer by the age of 12 when he was invited to join the Society of American Magicians, its youngest member ever at 16. David was adjunct professor at NYU where he taught a course called The Art of Magic and at 18 was cast as the lead in The Magic Man, a musical created by the producers of Grease. The show opened in Chicago to rave reviews and the legend began. The success of The Magic Man led to a job hosting an ABC Magic special and for the next two decades, Copperfield continued to break new ground with his annual top-rated Emmy Award-winning television specials, on which he continued to outdo himself by walking through the Great Wall of China, escaping from chains and shackles before plunging over Niagara Falls, surviving being locked in a safe inside an imploding building, making a daring escape from Alcatraz prison, levitating and vanishing a 45-ton Orient Express train car, escaping while hanging upside down from burning ropes in a straitjacket 10 stories above flaming spikes, surviving the deadly heat, standing in the center of a 2,000-degree tornado fire, and making the Statue of Liberty disappear, among so many others. In 96, David realized a lifelong dream of performing on Broadway, creating dreams and nightmares with Francis Ford Coppola, which broke the record for most tickets sold in a week. A historian of his art, Copperfield founded the International Museum and Library of Conjuring Arts, which houses the world's largest collection of historically significant magic memorabilia, posters, books, props, and artifacts. In 1982, Copperfield established Project Magic, a rehabilitation program that uses sleight-of-hand magic as a method of physical therapy. The program is accredited by the American Occupational Therapy Association and used in hospitals across the globe. Copperfield joined forces with Dean Koontz, Joyce Carol Oates, Ray Bradbury, and others for David Copperfield's Tales of the Impossible, an anthology of original fiction set in the magic world. This collection was so successful, the second volume, David Copperfield's Beyond Imagination, was published. In the film world, Copperfield most recently was cast in the Jim Carrey Steve Carell film Burt Wonderstone, and his team developed illusions for the film and coached Carell and Olivia Wilde on how to perform a sawing trick without the use of covering or camera tricks. Another one of Copperfield's inspired tricks found its way in the $350 million grossing film Now You See Me, where they brought Copperfield on as a co-producer for the sequel, where he consulted on the screenplay. Copperfield is the owner of Musha Key, a set of 11 private resort islands in the Bahamas, covering 700 acres, 40 beaches, and only up to 24 guests can stay there at a time. 
Some of the most extraordinary people in the entertainment business stay there on a regular basis, like Oprah, John Travolta, and Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem were married there. According to Forbes magazine, Copperfield was the top-earning magician in 2016, earning $64 million and performing at the MGM Grand Theater that bears his name. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, a man who I have the most respect for, David Copperfield. Thank you very much. So I have so many things to ask you, but I went to your show last night. You sat me at the most amazing table. I'm in the front row. I've never been in the front row of a magic show before. This isn't even a magic show. This is beyond the magic show. It's a real experience that you have to go to. First thing I want to ask you is, when I think of you, I think of a guy who just is detached from talking about anything personal or anything that way and as a guy about the illusion the special effect the thing that's going to change people's lives forever with the trick you think of all the greatest things you've done from the statue of liberty the great wall of china it's about the vision in your head that you can't forget not about the words so it could play in Beijing or it could play in the backwoods of some country that I don't even know and they'd get it but in this show in Vegas what really shocked me is that I saw a side of you that I didn't know you were willing to share one that talked about your dad your family your unresolved conflicts and the whole show kind of ties things together, and it's like a love letter to your family and your dad. How did you decide that you wanted to sort of change the game from being the guy who did something that the trick was the thing that blew people away? And I'm not saying the illusions here are just unbelievable, but to going and being about family. My beginnings were always about storytelling, you know, it's amazing how a brand becomes about the iconic things that you do. Um, you know, you're remembered for a Statue of Liberty and thing or a relationship you have, you know. The, um, but my magic has always been about storytelling. This one, I think, is more refined. It's really come even more personal. But even back in the days of, you know, TV specials, in the beginnings, TV specials, it was always about um, my girlfriend leaving me or a date with a magician or my love for Hitchcock movies. You know, I do this shower scene from Psycho or I would do a, a date with a magician and all the specials were really based on stories. And then it got more personal, you know, it got more, I, I shared even more personal stuff. I did a Broadway show uh, with Francis Ford Coppola as my collaborator and his the title that he came up with was dreams and nightmares and just for our audience that show broke all box office records on broadway and to this day is the highest grossing and most successful first week in the history of broadway i don't know if it's still that case but but we we did very very well did a lot of shows i i work very very hard but the coppola sh show was dreams and nightmares and it was a, he said you got to tell about your personal dreams and nightmares and I've been refining that ever since I think you know just to make it real you know he told me that you know not only what every writer knows you know write what you know but really get give detail and let them you know d don't make it so short 
and so abbreviated detail is very important and say the name of the candy store and say the the name of what it is because you'll draw people in so i learned so much obviously with from from mr coppola uh and this show is really a ref reflection of that but always always my career is, is, has been about trying to convey more than just the illusion but it's it's amazing that somebody that you you obviously pay attention to show business a lot um and um, being so ingrained in all your different aspects of what you do even though that exists in your life, the things that you remembered uh, were the iconic things, the things that, you know, uh, were brand identifying. But really, people that know my work n knew me as a storyteller from the very, very beginning. Now, maybe because it's, it, it, it's as a father myself and your father yourself, I think it's communicating, um, uh, you know, more deeply. And the show sort of fascinating to me from a producer standpoint and somebody who's managed artists my whole career i actually was kind of fascinated by how you constructed it now you start off the show and it's this beautiful video and photographic journey of how people sort of let you know that maybe things weren't possible if you wanted to do what you did and you talked about and inspired the audience by telling them that anything's possible and sort of tipped the cap of what was to come. You know, a lot of people say, oh, believe in yourself and all the kind of Tony Robbins-esque uh, thing. I really, you know, um, for me, it was really being told I couldn't do this. You know, this magic job, you know, my mother said, you're never going to make it. You're not going to, you better do something that will feed your family or feed you. You're never going to have, have success. And I love her for it because it really em empowered me, you know, uh, to work even harder to prove that I was okay. Sometimes I worry with my kids, you know, I'm so proud of you. I'm so keep going for that, whatever. And I wonder if that's the wrong thing to do, if I should be the person who says, hey, listen, kid, don't do that. You're never going to make it. And then he'll make it. Right. And, uh, and it's a really tough balance, isn't it? You know, the, the carrot and the stick uh, aspect of it. You know, we have a generation that, you know, is a stereotyped view of, of the millennial generation who were kind of bolstered by, by all of the approval that they got. They get, they get kind of accused of, you know, what about me? What about me? Instead of having to f have the fire and fight for, for, for working hard. And uh, a lot of people that work for me, I try to spend time with and say, look, you know, you really have to uh, learn to take the criticism and, you know, and to, 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 to take things seriously. You know, I have a big issue with people that go, my bad. I hate that, that expression, my bad. It's like acknowledging that people did something wrong, but kind of tossing it away and not taking it very, very seriously to, to really try to learn from it and solve those problems. Um, you know, for me, certainly as a parent, it's, it's a fine line, you know, because really a lot of, you know, um, of my passion and my fire comes from from just uh, a lot of negativity and a lot of no's, you know, tons of no's. And as you know, today, like you've done amazing things in your life. I've done some good things and, you know, still it continues. It doesn't stop. Uh, you think that you're going to have all this knowledge after accomplishing certain things and you're going to figure it all out and it's going to be easy after, but it's, it's not the case, you know. So I'm, I'm on a constant you know, quest of learning and, and growing. And so I want to go back to the show for a second, because this is where I 
didn't think the show would go, and I want to try to understand why it went this way. You have the incredible piece towards the end, which I'm not going to spoil, about family and your dad and his journey, and it's like you're watching a feature film on stage. I've never seen anything like it in my life, and I would say that segment with different things involved in the theme could go for 30 minutes long. How long did it go, do you think? How long was that? I'd say the segment that I'm talking about from beginning to end and then coming back towards the tie-in at the end, which that was probably another seven minutes, I'd say it was probably 37 minutes of this theme. Wow, you're really good. That's precisely what it is. You're a real producer. You really know. <laughs> Thanks, man. The clock was going in your head, the internal clock. Yeah, yeah, and I never timed anything. My phone was in the box. Which is really long, you know, because people are coming to my show to see what you said before, you know, statues disappear and big, big illusions or close-up magic. And I do a whole story, and I, you know, I can tell you it's about an alien and my father. and Worked at Roswell. I worked at Roswell, which is for real, and... Uh, and, you know, it's really based on the fact that my father was at Roswell, for real. We didn't know it. I found his card in his belongings. This is 100% true. Um, and also, I wasn't there when he passed away. So there is, you know, a real <laughs> need for me to do this. You know, it comes from a real place um, to, to solve that problem. And I know a lot of people have had that exact same journey. Um, and maybe the alien was real too, but no, but seriously, the, uh, the idea of, you know, not saying goodbye to somebody you love because you're busier because the timing isn't right is something that is very real to me and real to a lot of people. And, um, uh, we tell it with a lot of jokes and a lot of, you know, lightheartedness, but some, some, uh, very true, true, true moments. Let's go back to the time when your dad passed away and knowing what you know now you got all these shows you're going all over the world you got the letters that he sent you that many of them go unopened because you're so crazy busy knowing what you know now about when he was going to pass let's say you knew but you had the whole schedule you had everything everything was still the same what would you have done? Would you have canceled the tour to spend more time with him? Would you? How would you have handled things differently? I don't know. That's tough. I, I definitely, if I knew the window of time, um, I would have loved to have said goodbye, obviously. And, and um, I would have made that happen. I would have stopped and walk off stage and, uh, you know, <laughs> return the ticket money and, and, uh, and, taking the plane and get there and obviously I think I would have done that to have that last hug and you know this uh, we, I talk about it in the show certainly that's a, a regret but it, it empowers you know uh, something that could help other people so it's turned into a positive thing my father was the kind of guy that you know if, if he was sick or whatever he says keep working keep working he would just you know say I don't don't come here just go do your thing he would be that kind of thing he wasn't needy in that way um, he's a guy that gave up his uh, passion of being an actor to feed us. You know, my mom 
and uh, his family said, you know, <laughs> you know, this is not a real job. You know, he had a stage name and all that. He really went to, he was going to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts because uh, if you're in World War II, you get a free scholarship there. Uh, he was all set, but he, he kind of gave it up and became a haberdasher. So here I am. When I watched that part of your show, there was a song that played in my head as I was watching you simultaneously. Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. Yeah, I love that. That and that and Taxi. Speaking of Harry Chapin, both those those two songs are like you know, they both are very real in our lives in their own way. You know, I think there's a little bit of us that we always, to a certain degree, <laughs> make those mistakes. Um, I did get to spend a lot of time with him um, uh, before that, before he started to decline. Um, they traveled the world. My mom and dad traveled the world with me. They went, met five or six presidents and a lot of royalty. And they, you know, um, they were kind of the mascots of my show for a while. But at the very end, I didn't get to say the goodbyes I wanted, I wanted to say. So I'm just going to say one more thing about the show that I wanted to understand in your mind why you constructed it this way. There was at least 45 minutes of the show, which was unbelievable but had nothing to do with the theme of the show. And I was really confused, like, let's just take the piece, and I'm not going to spoil anything, where there's a transference of a animal from one place to another, which is an amazing, amazing piece. Has nothing to do with the tie, and I thought to myself, why didn't he say, oh, even if it wasn't true, you know, I used to go to the lake with my dad and we used to watch the geese on the lake or whatever it is. And Do you think I should? Would you like it better if I did that? Yeah, because it ties in the theme. I thought that each illusion, there could be a written word or something to say, you know, this thing here, my dad and I used to do this together. And when we did this, it reminded me of this and I just want to do something. And so the whole show ties together in that theme as opposed to just it being two different segments. And that surprised me. And I want to know what the thought process was behind that. I think there's an expectation of people in a magic show to get pure stuff, kind of unplugged things. I don't think, um, you know, the show itself uh, isn't a play in itself. There's a little play in it, a little feature film in the, mo in, the, in the movie, in the show itself. But I think for the sake of real estate, overall real estate of the show, I think it's okay to do magic as pure magic. You know, the, the, the piece you're talking about or the little floating rose thing I do in the audience. And that was an amazing thing, but I didn't understand. This is what I was thinking when you were doing the floating rose thing. Why is David Copperfield doing the floating rose? David Copperfield is David Copperfield. The floating rose, I visualize that it's possible for other magicians to do that. The other things you do, I visualize, ah, these other guys aren't going to be able to do that. Now, then I thought to myself, well, he's doing this because he wants to show that he's capable of going to his roots. Because and when you talk to a movie producer, the great movie producers, what they say is the first thing they do when they get the set is they go get the star a cup of coffee and they bring him a cup of coffee. When there's all these PAs there to bring the cup of coffee, I say, why do you bring the cup of coffee? Because I want people to know that I'm still tied to my roots. And the second thing I thought when you did the roast trick is that, okay, he needs five minutes for a setup back there and they're doing something there. If you talk to the people after the show amazingly, you know, I have 
I mean, this show, uh, he's trying, Barry's trying to be very kind and try to be very clandestine, not to reveal anything, but this show is a, kind of changes the, the vernacular of magic. Absolutely. It's, it's not, you know, girls getting sawed in half or, you know, it's about dinosaurs and spaceships and aliens and time travel. And family. And family. So, so but I don't think you have to hit the bell every single time. Everything doesn't have to come together into one thing. In my, just my opinion. I think when you talk to a lot of people out of the show, after the show, they'll say they were moved by the, the whole uh, story piece. But they, they'll pick out the little floating rose thing in the audience as their favorite thing. Because they like the pure, unencumbered thing. Amazingly. And the, I, you know, I like that. I've got a, a pet duck named Webster. All those things actually, you know, it's amazing that I think they do tie together because, you know, part of, I'm not floating a rose. It's about a relationship with me and the girl in the audience. You know, it's okay in a movie or in a play to have a kind of an unplugged moment, a little ballad. And the ballad might be about a side story. It doesn't have to be about the same same track every time you know i have so much inspiration that i have from films and from from music and other art forms and from comedy one of the things that blew me away is how unbelievably funny you were and you had elements of stand-up in there that was incredible it reminded me of how you used to go to shows in new york and watch shows at carolines and otto and george and jay moore in the beginning yeah yeah and the I just learned today that you saw me in the audience watching Jay Moore and my my good friend Otto and George. We've lost this past couple of years and uh, yeah, twenty five years ago. Yeah. I think. Um, and that was that was when I was twenty five years. Yeah, but uh, but he yeah, he was a friend till the end, and you know, big fan of his irreverence and and what was yeah. fascinating. I went there and I saw you and Claudia Schiffer, and I thought to myself, this guy represents the values of America to everybody. He's like a guy who could go anywhere, perform, as they say in NASCAR, from drool to drool. <laughs> and yet he's sitting here watching one of the bluest, dirtiest comics in the history of comedy. You know, in Otto and George's audience would be Kevin Spacey. <laughs> you know, you'd have just really, really, you know, <sighs> educated, smart theater people. I forgot I met him that night, too. He was there, too, that night? Yeah. It's just, it's, the reason for me, it was about the rhythm. It was about the choice of words. Uh, I'm not saying just a bunch of dirty words. It's the construction, the actual mathematics of how he was doing his comedy and making it work uh, that really, really was, was wonderful to watch. It was just, you know... I'm going to hit him in the head with a Galliano bottle. A Galliano bottle. It's like just the 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 the, the poetry. On the, people are going to laugh at this, but <laughs> but there is a kind of a you know uh, amazing uh, um, you know pace and rate of what he'd say and how he'd say it was kind of educational and um, and fun and fun to watch. And he was a troubled guy certainly, but a brilliant brilliant guy. Yeah. I'm glad you saw that. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. 
whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back. Let's go way back and let's start off with where you grew up, your family life, and what was your first inspiration to become a magician and in the entertainment business? Boy, a lot, lots of things. Um, New York City World's Fair, 1964, 1965. Big inspiration. Uh, Walt Disney, big inspiration. Showing up at the World's Fair. I just recently went back there to the, the fairgrounds, um, Flushing Meadows. It was an, it's an amazing thing. And I talk about it in the show. Uh, I collect downstairs. I've got a collection of 64, 65 World's Fair things. And a lot of Disney Imagineers today who are my age and our age, uh, you talk to them and they say that's what started them off. you going there and seeing It's a Small World or Abe Lincoln or the Carousel of Progress or uh, just amazing you know, storytelling using three-dimensional objects moving and uh, transporting you in a unique way. Not just TV. Seeing the possibilities that were endless, you know. Um, and I don't, st I keep doing the same thing. I'm trying to have the same effect that happened to me as a kid, seeing 
the East Coast Disneyland, you know, uh, which was the New York City World's Fair. Um, seeing those big rides, and I think I'm trying to see about influencing people to experience and discover endless possibilities, and that's what I saw there. On TV, it was the Ed Sullivan Show, and seeing uh, Paul Winchell, the ventriloquist. How many magicians were on the Ed Sullivan Show? Millions of them, but I thought, uh, you know, there's too many magicians, there's only a couple of ventriloquists. I should do, be a ventriloquist. So I got a dummy based on Paul Winchell's success on TV. How old were you when you got the dummy? Seven or eight. Where do you get a ventriloquist dummy at seven or eight? In the touch in New Jersey. My parents bought it at the toy store. Uh, you know, Jerry Mahoney on TV had moving eyes, animated. Uh, you know, Paul Winchell was the voice of Tigger. People would know him as the voice of Tigger. He also invented the artificial heart. Uh, as the patent holder of the artificial heart. Um, but he was a brilliant ventriloquist. Also, a very kind of complicated, troubled <laughs> artist. It's so funny that all my idols were had troubles and problems and so forth. And I thought I'd never make it because I had such a f normal life and my parents were together and they, they loved me. And yes, my mother did push me a little bit in, the, in, the, in a negative way, but... But I thought, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to have a success because, you know, all the people I looked up to really had screwed up lives. But I watched Paul Winchell, got a dummy for my parents, a ventriloquist figure. It didn't have moving eyes, which really pissed me off. I wanted the eyes to move like the one on TV. Um, and I did talent shows in school. And I was really bad. I really sucked. <laughs> you know? But the kids kind of liked me. They kind of gave me attention. It was bizarre. Uh, they kind of applauded me. I said, well, wait, really? You like that? That's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I said, well, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. This is, this is kind of cool. Um, and I went looking for a better ventriloquist figure uh, than the one I had with the moving eyes. And I walked into Tannen's Magic Shop. And also Macy's had a magic counter on the fifth floor of Macy's. And I discovered magic that you could actually, you know, do this magic stuff. And there was a guy named Danny doing this little board thing. And, uh, and I bought it. I bought the board thing. I went to Tannen's magic shop in New York. And it was like being in heaven. It was incredible. I'm cre recreating Tannen's, uh, my, own ver my own old version of it in my museum to relive that kind of thing. But it's the place that J.J. Abrams started. You know, he, he got the mystery box that he talks about in his TED Talks, a wonderful TED Talk about the importance of keeping the ma magic alive, keeping the mystery, not knowing what's in something. And he opened this, he'd never opened this box that he got at Tannen. So uh, we have a shared experience of that, that same kind of inspiration. But I loved magic. You know, I discovered this place that I could be really good at. And uh, uh, I would, get the catalog and I'd read the description of the effect in the catalog uh, this beautiful thick catalog that you'd you know immerse yourself in uh, or the books in the library and I refused to look at the method of how I how the thing worked I would just read this catalog description or the the, the, the description of the effect in the magic book but wouldn't read the secret and I would see if I could create how I would do it. <laughs> and I'm a 10-year-old kid at the time, and I would create pretty good methods of things and um, uh, challenging myself to, to find my own way of, 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 of these, these things. And I, I invented some things which were eventually, at 12 years old, was published in the Tarbell Course in Magic, some of my inventions when I was 12. Um, so it really kind of 
came very easy for me, this magic stuff, you know? So ventriloquism became the magic, and the magic was kind of the thing that I was meant to do. Not good at anything else, you know, just kind of, but magic was my way of, of, of expressing myself, inventing new things, and uh, uh, was kind of a little prodigy in my own way. When was the first moment where you said to yourself, I am never doing anything else again, and I will make it at this? Well, um, I knew that I had to do this, but I think to this day, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it or not. <laughs> it's still, you know, I'm not kidding. I'm just, you know, still f fighting the fight to this day. Um, and it's probably fear-based. It's probably looking at artists who were very confident, who after one season, one album, one show have disappeared into the ether of things um watching that happen over and over again and saying that i'm not gonna let that happen you know when i was you know jumping ahead when i did my first uh, special i went to uh, there were cbs specials but i shot it at nbc studios I had the better studio taller and bigger i wanted a lot of depth and scale to my shows and so we sh we'd shoot at nbc and I walked into the studio and the Carson show would be shooting over here and all things. And all the dressing rooms had these little signs that you could just take out these little placards you can take out in the parking spaces. You could just take out the names and it was chilling <laughs> to watch the realization, how quick it was to be forgotten and how quick it was to, to have everything you work hard for being taken away just by making the mistake of being lazy or ineffectual or, or, uh, or, or not, uh, you know, they, they use the word relevant today. I, I think that's a stupid word, but I think it's a matter of just moving forward, you know, which goes back to the whole Walt Disney thing, you know, keep moving forward. It's one of his, one of his, uh, quotes. What happened to me was that, you know, I was, magic was very easy for me, but the things that I loved to watch or do were everything else. <laughs> I loved musicals. Um, I loved theater. Uh, I loved movie musicals and theater. I loved plays. Uh, I used to second act Broadway shows as a kid. For those of you who don't know what second acting is, they let you in for free after the break. They don't let you in. You sneak in for free. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You know, and people would go outside the theater during intermission, and the second act, you'd kind of mingle with a crowd, and you find an empty seat. You know, it wouldn't work in Hamilton because there's no empty seats. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, in most shows, you could find a place and I'd see shows. I would see Greece, the original Greece. I'd see it 200 times, literally. Or I'd see Pippin. You could uh, have standing room seats for three bucks back then. Three dollars. You could see I have a standing room seat in the back. So I'd 200 times, you know, with Ben Vereen and, and John Rubenstein and you know, I used to hang out with Bob Fosse just to get my way in the back door. I loved theater and I, I loved Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, but I was a magician guy. How am I going to, how do I do what I'm doing and have that kind of emotion, that kind of feeling? What can I do to combine those two? And I did. I worked very hard and it's a, you know, to, to try to get the emotions I would feel when I'd see a singing in the rain which I just saw again yesterday and wept in the audience is literally weeping, you know, watching singing, right? Watching the level of excellence, just watching that you realize I'm crying because I realize I'm, I'm built from that. I'm made from that. It informed everything I did. And Bob Fosse informed everything I did. And, uh, you know, just 
amazing work that influenced, you know, uh, who we are. And combining magic with those emotions was something that was very, very important to me. It provided the, 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 the unique identifying factor of what the, my brand was. Tell our audience what your first big break in show business was. There was a show on Broadway called The Magic Show that Doug Henning had a huge success with. And I used to um, hang out with him backstage. And he said, you know, uh, I'm going to make you my understudy. This is like my dream, you know. And, um, you know, I found out later that he was making sure that he was telling Edgar Lansbury, don't hire this guy. <laughs> you know, so to my face, he was saying, uh, oh, you're my buddy. We talk about girls. We do but behind my back, you know, he's, a, he's not going to fit through the trap doors of the thing. Now, this is a guy that I really respected and still respect him. You know, we lost him. He's, he really changed magic in many ways. So I really admire what he did. But you made him nervous because he saw your talent. He, he saw something, I think. I'm not sure what he saw. But, um, you know, whoever understudied him was not another magician. It was more of an actor kind of person. Um, but he saw that I had a point of view that, you know, may not have been good for, for, for kind of... Uh, for, for him um, but it really empowered me it really strengthened me you know to see that was my first in quotes Hollywood experience where somebody says something to your face and you know is operating to your disadvantage behind your back but we, we became friends afterwards and you know I really and he's represented my museum you know to honor what he did but it was a great thing uh, another one of those negatives that ended up empowering me that uh, really helped me at the end of the day but uh, that was a show in New York that I went to see uh, and hung out with. But at the same time, Pippin was around, Grease was around, light music, Sondheim musicals, um, amazing work that uh, I said, I need to make magic like that, you know. And um, a year after that, I auditioned. I actually put an ad in Variety. I used to have ads in the front of where you could buy um and uh, a magician actor david copperfield first time i changed my name to david copperfield your real name was david kotkin k-o-t-k-i-n is my real name and why did you come up with copperfield it wasn't my idea it was a um a reporter in new york i used to hang out with uh named barry cunningham and his wife laura cunningham who was a screenwriter um i was hanging out with them and they would they would take me to these parties and i was just like 14-year-old kid walking to these parties with Andy Warhol. He had all this access because he was a New York Post reporter at the time. And, uh, you know, there would be Stevie Wonder singing on a piano, and I was, I couldn't believe it. Um, and um, and they suggested uh, yeah, this David Copperfield name. And in retrospect, I think it was a mistake. <laughs> you know, I have to share my, 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 my name with that uh, wonderful Dickens book. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I can get rid of it now. But uh, they suggested it. I took it, and I put an ad in uh, Variety, and the producers of Greece saw the ad. And, um, and I auditioned at the Schubert Theater in New York for the show they did called The Magic Man. Had you ever done an audition like that in your life before? Never. What happened was I was uh, very friendly with Ben Vereen, who was the star of Pippin at the time. He gave me his singing teacher, a guy named J. Albert Fracht. And uh, at the Ansonia Hotel, I would go 
take sing lessons and I can't sing at all but but uh, you know I tried uh, I made my effort I was studying dancing with Peter Peter Gennaro uh, and um, and music and all this to try to round out my magic stuff and the ad ran and I got this call and I said I gotta practice I gotta practice before this audition so I went to Juilliard and I started knocking on doors and there was a girl playing piano, practicing her piano. I said, please help me. In two hours, I've got an audition for this Broadway show. It's, all Broadway. it's a Chicago show, uh, actually, but it's going to be on Broadway. Uh, I'm going to, my audition's on Broadway. Would you help me? And she said, okay. And I rehearsed for two hours with this girl out of the blue. <laughs> I wish I could find her today to see who, to thank her. So, so then uh, I went to this, theater in New York, uh, the Schubert Theater, and it was a stage where Over Here was playing. It was an Andrew Sisters musical with the Andrew Sisters in it, uh, written by uh, the Sherman Brothers, who wrote It's a Small World, all ties together. Um, and uh, on that stage, I sang and danced and did the dancing cane, which was this classic thing I, uh, I did, and sang the Jack Jones song, Hey Little Girl, <laughs> Uh, fix your hair, uh, put on your makeup, this pretty sexist song <laughs> about how women should be, you know, uh, lovers for their husbands, you know, you know, horrible message, but a kind of a, uh, a, a very, very buoyant song. And I'm sure I sang it badly. And these two guys are in the audience and they go, you're hired in the audience, like the classic thing. You're the guy. And, um, and I, I stopped my term at Fordham University. I went to Fordham for my mom uh, for, four, for four weeks or three weeks in Fordham. I dropped out of Fordham and I flew to Chicago and was there for a year doing this, uh, this musical. I got to sing and dance and act. Kind of a copy of the magic show that Doug Henney was doing. I think they're six, they want to have that same success. But it was the producers of Greece who had this, this uh, property already done prior to the magic show. So Imagine that one of the most successful person in your profession is a college dropout. Yeah, yeah. And years later, 20 years later, Fordham gave me a doctorate. They <laughs> gave me, a, I'm a doctorate of arts and letters, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. But um, I'm in a line of lots of dropouts, you know. I was teaching magic at NYU, you know, prior to that at 16, but I, as far as academia, I kind of learned from life. And your first television break was what? The Magic Man sh closed after they took away all my songs, you know. One month by month, my songs were given to all the different other actors because of my crappy singing. And, um, uh, but the magic was good, and I, I guess I was decent enough in the show. Um, the reviews were okay. They loved my magic and liked me, but, you know. But the show ran a long time, you know. Ran, it was a very long-running original musical. Um, I went to New York after that. Uh, with my girlfriend at the time, and we got an apartment in New York, and um, and I starved. I you know couldn't get could get a job. I think oh my god, I had this huge success in Chicago, it was really you know uh, kind of in the parades and all that stuff. And then I went to New York, and I realized oh my god, this is not going to be so easy. And I spent uh, months in New York, knocking on doors and developing a show of my own. And I rented this. Uh, apartment of uh, two actresses who had this amazing amazing music collection of Gershwin and Broadway shows and and uh, that's entertainment had come out recently the the, the Jack Haley um, 
musical, the compilation. So influenced by that. And at, while I was starving, I kind of came up with these routines that um, doing a levitation to American in Paris and uh, doing a date with a magician. It's the most unusual day, the Jane Powell song. I would dance with the pieces after cutting her, the girl in half, a date with a magician. I do a Keystone Cop number. Um, so it was really all these, I do an Alfred Hitchcock psycho number. But it cost money to create these things and to build them and you're broke in new york city probably living in a studio apartment how do you finance these first tricks well it was kind of clever first was not part wasn't clever my father would give me money for the heating bill you know i kind of compute if i go to three movies this month and pay the heat and the water bill and the rent i'll have this many months to live i kind of calculated <laughs> what a year how much might i have to have in the bank for a year for that and there were these industrial shows that were happening where you could uh, do these shows for corporations ibm and and uh, pitney bows and i would get hired to do these shows to produce the executives magically. And they heavily theme these shows about the, uh, the people who've sold 100% of, of a product. Um, and it would be me and it'd be Henry Kissinger speaking. And it would be uh, Bruce Jenner would be speaking because he was a superstar at the time. He was the perfect human being, you know, on the, on the cover of the Wheaties box. Uh, and he'd be speaking. He says he remembers me at these things. I'm sure he does not. But, but uh, um, I was the lowly magician who would be hired to kind of weave the story of why all these executives were magicians in their own way. Um, and um, it, it was an amazing time, but it also paid for all the stuff. It paid for all the hardware. I, you know, all those, uh, I got the companies who would put on these... Um, these productions to buy my illusions for me, for me. But I, I bought them, you know, it's very Disney inspired. Uh, you know, the New York City World's Fair, the brilliant thing of Walt Disney did, he, he had corporations pay for It's a Small World. And the deal was they do It's a Small World and Pepsi would pay for all this stuff and he get to take all the, the animatronics home and put it in Disneyland. Uh, they would build, he'd have the Illinois State build miss, the animatronic Mr. Lincoln, he'd get to use it in the President's Hall of Fame back in Disneyland. Uh, at, at the car companies, Ford, whoever would build the, the, the big ride show equipment, and he'd get to take it. Well, I was really inspired by that, so I did the exact same thing. I would do industrial shows in a much smaller way. Uh, the industrial shows would pay for these illusions, but the illusions I picked to tell the, the corporation's stories were, were illusions that I could use in my own show, telling my personal stories of things. So uh, that's where the money came from. But still had to count every single $10 thing for the heating bill or the, the electric bill, yeah. Unlike a stand-up comedian or a singer, you know, there's thousands of outlets all over the world. There's no place for a magician to practice their craft in front of an audience over and over again. A comedian can work for 10 years. How does a magician hone his craft when there's no place to perform it to? Well, it's, you're right. It's really, it's really hard. And the opportunities were far less back when I was starting, you know. Uh, it was finding, you know, really believing in it. Um, and I would have tapes of me doing The Magic Man. I'd have 10 demo tapes out. Uh, I got picked to do this show called Magic of the Roxy, 
which was a compilation of me and Carl Ballantyne and and uh, Richard Ross, uh, amazing Randy, uh, and we were flown to um, to Pittsburgh, I think it was, and in this Roxy Theater, and they shot the show, and I had worked on all this material in the industrial shows, uh, American and Paris Levitation, and. Uh, backstage of the magician you'd see what magic happened behind the scenes and uh i did a thing of horrible dance routine to ease on down the road because the whiz was the big show uh, musical with a great uh, great score and they the audience kind of liked me they kind of liked it and the show ended and uh, the magic was different and i was a you know a 18-year-old, 19-year-old teenager at the time, and I kind of liked what I was doing. And uh, when the show wrapped, there was a rap party that night, and they showed kind of a rough cut of the show. And I watched, <laughs> I watched the video of me doing this stuff, which got great reaction. And I started to, to cry. I was like emotionally wrecked from it. And what I saw on screen wasn't what my mind <laughs> was doing you know as I was dancing around on stage I saw myself as Gene Kelly and I saw the moves were going to look that good and the lighting and the you know just the shots were, and it wasn't I was like oh my god and I was ready to give up it was that bad I said maybe I'm doing the wrong thing maybe I'm just in taking the exact wrong path you know maybe the correct way is to do it a more standard way maybe combining magic with dancing or or that level of storytelling or was the wrong direction. Maybe it was a huge mistake. And I really felt it and really believed it. But the audience kind of liked it. I didn't know why. And then time passed and I realized that it was the right way to go. You know, even though it wasn't meeting my level of ex expectations, it wasn't as good as what I thought it should look like. But it was, it was a horrible and wonderful moment, you know. Um, I took that tape, that umatic three-quarter inch tape, a big brick of a tape and knocked on doors and I went to see Jack Rollins Rollins and Jaffe who managed Woody Allen at the time right and Billy Crystal and you know just and also produced Woody Allen movies still does um, and they said this is pretty good go across the street to see this guy named Joe Cates Joe Cates is you know we do mostly comedy you see this Joe Cates is a producer and Joe Cates, uh, with his brother Gil, who produced the Oscars for many years. And Gil Cates Jr., his son, is producing as well. Which is in a really wonderful family. Joe Cates had a cigar, like the classic Broadway, you know, producer, you know. Uh, and he watched this tape I put into the thing, and he, his eyes lit up. And he was producing specials, Steve Martin specials, and circus specials, and so forth. And he said, you know, this is, you have a point of view here. This is not just magic. This is magic with kind of a, a point of view. It's different, you know. And he took that tape to uh, Fred Silverman. Fred Silverman, legendary television producer, also network president of NBC at one time. Mm -hmm. And they put me on ABC on a, a show to introduce the ABC season. <laughs> and it was me and Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams and and Howard Cosell and uh, uh, Hal Linden and uh, Charlie's Angels and me, you know, it's like the uh, the guy on the, uh, 
in Talladega Nights. You know, <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. What am I going to do with my hands? You know, <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And Donnie and Marie walk in the room and they put me on. And they're like, since birth, they're taught how to work the camera and what to do and memorize. And Donnie Osmond learns this routine that Jaime Rogers, this uh, wonderful uh, choreographer, spent months with me to learn. You know, he, he learns it in, in 10 minutes. It's amazing. And they knew every detail of how to panel where the cameras were and what to do and where to look and where the lights were. And I sat there like, going, what? what's going on here? And um, that's my first TV special. It was a, a, a big commercial for ABC where all of the people that worked on the show had no idea how to shoot magic or do magic, nor did I. But it was so rough shooting magic is a specialty mm -hmm. and if you don't do it right you're in trouble and here you were a young person and your career hinged on this special and you had to rely on these people who never shot magic before who were wonderful who were wonderful in their own way bill Ballou did the costume bill Ballou designed elvis's famous suit right we had uh, Romaine Johnston who designed the Flip Wilson set and men, you know, Oscar sets and all this. You know, but, but they had no idea about magic. You know, I was producing cards you know, out of thin air in front of a white background wearing a white suit. <laughs> you know, it was like bizarre that you couldn't see the cards. You know what I'm saying? So they did, just didn't think about that stuff. I just saw a Gene Kelly interview after watching Singing in the Rain for the 2000th time. <laughs> and Gene Kelly talked about watching himself in his first few movies. We had no control of what he was doing. And he would do a dance and they'd cut away from the dance and they would do, the framing of the shot was wrong. And he said, you know, I had to learn how to do lighting and learn how to position the camera, learn how to direct or else all my hard work wouldn't be seen properly. And that's a flashback to my you know, 20, 20 year old experience. You know, he had all these brilliant people who could shoot the hell out of music or, or comedy or whatever, but didn't know how to shoot magic so I had to learn I had to learn about lighting learn about design learn about all those things just to survive um, luckily that first special wasn't a catastrophe people did tune in to see it and CBS saw it a guy named Bernie Safronsky um, saw this show and Joe Cates pitched this show which wasn't a commercial it was a uh, an annual special which you know evolved over you know, 20, 20 years on CBS. I believe you did 18 straight years in a row of an hour special every year. Then you took a break for about four or five years and did two more. You did 20 <laughs> network specials in like 24 years. Yeah. You know, people talk about comedy. Oh, Louis C.K., he writes a new hour a year, and Bill Burr writes a new hour a year. But they don't realize how difficult it is to create a new magic show. It's the same. I mean, I think it's the same. I mean, Seinfeld talks about it, the, you know, the craft of getting the word exactly right. How do you get that? The placement, Louis C.K., the year. Of, it was a year uh, uh, per special, and it was torture. It was really hard, you know, to get it right, because I wasn't... I don't have the great American songbook of magic. You can't draw from that. I mean, I... You end up being an inventor. You're inventing new things. You take some old things and redress them, maybe, but you have to reinterpret it in a very f fresh new way. And um, but mostly it's inventing new things. What you saw on the show last night is invention. You know, it's five years of work. You know, I get a lot of strength by listening to people who at Pixar who struggle 
and make it suck less over a five-year period to get one piece right, you know? And that's what I do. And the, today, you know, the fast food of television is, and the amount of, of content that's needed is, is, is mind-boggling. And uh, unlike music, where you can have an American Idol or a The Voice show, or you can draw from music of, that exists, it doesn't exist in magic, you know? And we're inventing new things, much like a Pixar movie. I want to talk to you about something that doesn't exist in magic that shocks me. Why are there no women who have become household names in magic? I think, and I hope, that will change. You know, I think there's some very talented uh, female magicians out there. Do you want to mention names? You know, they're still developing their you know, who they are, uh, their talent, you can see it in a kind of a, uh, in an individual piece that they do. Uh, the over, the, nobody in that category has an overall show, per se. Uh, there was a, a magician in uh, Japan named Princess Tenko. In the 50s, there was a, a yeah, lady named Del O'Dell who did her whole show to rhyme, uh, Adelaide Herman took over for her husband and did a show. Um, uh, there's been some various people who've had TV specials throughout. There were people that did do um, um, magic on TV and stuff. There has to be a hypothesis from the greatest magician in the world of why it's never happened yet in a century or more. I think it's hard to make it as a magician at all, first of all. To be a household name as a magician, it's, that's a difficult task because of everything we've talked about. You know, the amount of material that exists and so forth. Um, you know, I think uh, we, people are expendable, I think, unfortunately. People in their minds, uh, we forget about stuff too quickly, unfortunately. There's a lot of great work that gets forgotten very quickly. So I think just as a, in any gender, uh, to, to make a mark in any, any craft, much less magic is, is hard to have a lasting effect. Um, it's weird because, you know, women who have magical powers is a normal thing, you know, bewitched. I dream of genie. You know, we want to see that. That's a thing that we enjoy seeing. You know, uh, I was, transfixed by bewitched uh, you know Barbara Eden I got to know later in life you know it's like it makes sort of sense you know even witches you know women with magical powers does make sense doesn't it so I don't really know the answer I think maybe also there's less less women who have taken an interest in magic as you know as a person maybe that's something to do it too this is another thing I don't understand the Illusionist, which takes seven magicians and does tours across the country. The guy who produced it, Simon Painter, literally just took a poster, nothing else, just made a poster and went to sell it and sold it off the poster. And the interest in magic in that show, regardless of what you might think of the show or whatever anybody thinks of the show, very successful show with a lot of young people who aren't well known. It's doing well. And the people that, who, who toured with me, people who produced my tours, are involved in that show. Joe Marsh and Magic Productions, the people. So, you know, a lot of how to tour a magic show, 
we learn the hard way. Yes. And these people take the knowledge that they gain from working with you. They go out and do their thing and they get the successful show going. I don't take any credit for that, by the way. I think, you know, uh, most all of the magicians in that show I know and I respect. They're they're talented, uh, you know. Performers, you know, and I, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm proud that they are in my business. And that means a lot and obviously means a lot to them. What I don't understand is that you have the ability. I mean, in one phone call, you could do a show that toured the world with your name on it. David Copperfield presents these people. You could mentor somebody and you could actually get a small theater here in Vegas and it would sell out every week if you endorsed a person. But you don't get in that business and no magicians normally do get in that business. Why? Because, you know, obviously that gets brought to me a lot, that idea to partner in that, that whole, you know, expand in those areas. You know, what I do right now is hard, you know, and I care about it and it takes focus and we do very well, you know, so, you know, my mother's, the fear of God my mother put in me empowers me to make sure that I still maintain it. But, you know, artistically, I also would like to have your respect, you know, I like, you know, I, when Christopher Nolan comes to the show and he sits in the audience and he'll give an interview about magic and he'll talk about what he saw in my show. It's very flattering to me. It, it makes me very happy because it's somebody I respect, you know, when, uh, you know, really cool people come to see the show and they really are influenced by it, you know, or they're really affected by it. It gives me a lot of strength that I'm doing the right thing. And every single time that I go up to bat with a new idea, it doesn't work every time, you know? The piece that you liked, the whole alien piece, was not well received for a couple of years. It was really not. But I believed in it, and I made it finally be good. And it's like, but it really was criticized, and criticized bad, you know, TripAdvisor reviews, horrible. Why are you doing that? I didn't pay to see a puppet show. I don't want to, really, really bad. And they were kind of right, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They were, they, they had good, you know, they, as you know, the difference between really, really great and good and sucky is little tiny bits. And I stick with it. And luckily, you know, the audience sticks with it. And uh, I learn every time from it. I, you know, I gain so much knowledge from it. And still, still, there'll be a change tonight in the show from what you saw. You know, on the phone, I'm with my co-director, Homer Leewag, on the phone. We are tweaking a little change of how a piece of scenery comes down or how I'm going to rephrase something. Did you notice on the stage, writing on the stage, words? And oh, me? yes, I did. And that's me every night changing two sentences. Not in, a, in terms you understand, in a Seinfeld way. You know, he talks about it, creating a joke. Moving a word here or having, repeating a sentence here, it makes a difference. And I, it's... It's glorious torture for me, you know, it's like... To me, where I saw the artist torture in you is the difficulty you have, the pros and cons of audience participation. Because what happens is, 
for those of you who don't know, if you want to have audience participation, you have to have it be organic. But that takes time because a frisbee gets tossed to somebody and they're from Spain. And it could be one minute and 10 seconds before they do what you want them to do. Or you have somebody you have coming up on stage, but they don't get there quickly. And that's another minute and 30 seconds. There's probably at least 14 minutes of time that's taken for somebody to figure out what to do with something, to walk up stage, to do whatever, to get people set. And that's 14 minutes that in your mind, when I watch you perform, you're like, come on. It goes back to that same thing. You know, there is a, there is a rhythm of what you do and the audience has to go with that rhythm. And you, it's a, you're playing an instrument, you know, and when you start to involve people who are not part of the show because they're they're not even though people suspect they are they're not and they don't understand what you're saying or they take more time or they don't do what you want to do the whole rhythm starts to break you know it breaks down the song breaks down because you go to see these shows broadway singing in the rain nothing changes no word gets adjusted ever on you're not allowed to do that maybe in hamilton he's allowed to but you're not allowed to so the show is that david saw on broadway not one line changed. Except when Zero Mustel walked on stage. <laughs> when Zero Mustel walked on stage in Fiddler on the Roof, I was there, I witnessed it. He was in Fiddler on the Revival of Fiddler on the Roof. Zero Mustel walks on stage and literally he takes the show hostage. He, he takes a character, he breaks, he does, stays in character, he breaks from the script and he takes, he, he tells a story of he does a mime piece where he strangles an imaginary guy, digs a hole, a grave, throws the imaginary ca- character in this grave, buries him for four minutes, which is a long time, and all the actors stand there like stunned. They don't know what they don't know what to do watching him do this entire thing like that. So that's the one time where you know <laughs> we're going to see Zero Mostel in the show. Uh, this is many many years ago, but yes, you're correct. Like I saw something last night, and you talk about the rhythm. Your rhythm completely broken. You're doing this trick that involved wristbands. Everybody's told a hundred times, put on your wristband, do this and that. The one person you bring up and you're in the middle of the trick, total finish of this trick. It's going to be amazing. All right, let me see your wristband. Where's your wristband? Uh, I didn't put it on. Okay, uh, let's switch you guys. And then you do something where you switch the two people, which is even more amazing because even though it broke your rhythm and it wasn't the way you wanted it, the trick became even more mind-boggling because you switched the people and it still worked. I, I like that idea that, you know, that I can dissect a show and change it and keep it fresh. You know, it would probably drive me crazy to do the same thing every single time. So the fact that people do throw me challenges and throw me curveballs means that I've got to really test my, my metal to see, you know, we had a girl... Oh, yeah. Were you there? Is it your show or the girl? I asked her, who'd you come to the show with? And I couldn't understand what she was saying. She said, um, she said, <laughs> my, my, my boo thang. My boo thang. Were you there for that? Yeah. She said, my boo thang. And I said, what? I couldn't understand boo thang. I, you know, I'm here with my boo thang. <laughs> She's talking about her, her, her husband or boyfriend, my boo thang. <laughs> so I've got an alien in the show. So, you know, I got a chance to make a joke about, uh, you know, he wants to be your b- blue thing, in boo thing. So, um, so, but 
the more that you know makes you feel good when you get to do that kind of stuff. When you when you get thrown something, a little little offering that you can make something into, you know. When I think of you, there's you and there's everybody else. But in your mind, when you think of magicians who have come up in the 30 or so years that you've been working, who do you look at? And when you see them do something, you're like, damn it, that was good. I have so much respect for that person. And even though I don't do that trick and I never created that trick, I really am blown away by it. In magic, it's kind of funny that, like you said, it could be a, a, a trick, one thing that's like, oh my God, great. You know, there's been moments where I've been, it's, it's rare, but we get fooled by something. One of the horrible parts about being a magician is that you lose a little bit of that chance to feel that feeling that we give to people, that feeling of, oh my God, to feel that, wow, that, that rapture of feeling. When I, when, I, when I feel it, it's great. Rarely happens, but I was, a friend of mine was doing a, uh, an effect with a coin thing right in my hands, and the coin dropped from the heavens into my hand. And for a moment, I got to feel that feeling, and it's an amazing, amazing feeling. It's a great gift that I got and then two minutes later two seconds later uh, it, it I realized what he did but for that one moment I got to enjoy that one moment um, performing magicians watching magicians perform uh, there's very few that perform to the level that Gene Kelly performed or Astaire performs Sinatra or or today Celine Dion for example amazing how she transformed as a performer, amazing, where you go, oh my God, that's great. Very few people in magic have that thing for me because of my expectations are very, very, very high. There's lots of talented magicians out there who I love and respect. As far as feeling, oh my God, this is great. There's one guy who wasn't a great magic inventor. His magic wasn't unique. It was more standard kind of magic, but as a performer, he was... Still, you look at tapes of this guy named Ricciardi. If you YouTube Ricciardi doing the broom levitation, it's like, it's Gene Kelly level stuff. It's it's just, it's amazing. Um, and um, uh, he really did it. Wasn't his illusion, didn't invent it, you know. You know, wasn't funny guy, wasn't all, any of that stuff. Wasn't complete in that way. But just as a powerful, powerful performer presence, he was that level. You know, and uh, one of the few I've ever seen to do that. You know, there's a guy that I once saw. This was a trick that I've never seen anybody do. I've never seen anybody make it work. And it was an older magician named Norm Nielsen, I believe, that did the dancing cellos and violins. And that was a trick that really blew me away that I thought to myself, no magician could ever steal this. Right. Well, they haven't. They could steal it easily. He's, a, he's still around, uh, and uh, him and his wife, uh, amazing poster, restorer, collectors, uh, they recently sold their collection. But Norm, I saw as a kid in Mexico, floating of a violin. So it wasn't a cello. That would be a whole other thing. <laughs> that would be a lot heavier. But uh, <laughs> he floated a violin. And it was a, an amazing piece because uh, it was artistic. 
and then violin would play as he 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 do the uh, uh, the illusion and the whole show it was um, his whole act you know that twelve minute act whatever it was and you'd be able to time it better than me <laughs> um, was all originally music based and this speaks to what you said about my show in the beginning his original act was he'd come out with a flute and the flute would disappear and he before it disappeared pages of a on a music stand would turn and that flute disappeared he would rip up the the pages and the pages would become cards and he'd do a card manipulation with those pages uh with the cards the music uh sheet music that became cards and then he would start filling the violin um Prior to that, he produced coins, and the coins would go on a musical ladder. So it was all very themed in one consistent idea. And then years passed, and he didn't do that. He produced cards, and he'd produce coins, and then he'd float the violin. And I'd ask him, why? How come that was such a great idea to have this really consistent theme of having the deck of cards be music, piece of sheet music? And he said, people didn't care. People didn't. People didn't consciously care about that in my show in my work i did a piece it was a ballroom scene and me and lonnie anderson the uh, young lonnie anderson were there and she kind of blows me off in this club and everyone freezes and i go into this whole fantasy sequence where the mirror ball of this in this ballroom where she turned me down would float around come down from the mirror ball float around the room and uh, she'd be, she'd like me because this, I was impressing her with this effect. And the mirror barrel would vanish, and then she went back to normal and blew me off again in the in the sequence. And as part of the mirror ball sequence, sequence, I had to pass a hoop over the mirror ball to to show that there was no no attachments anywhere. And the hoop was part of a chair. At the back of the chair was the hoop because I thought, oh, let's really theme it right. And. Um, it was the same kind of thing, but nobody cared. So in my current show, I keep the story piece as one piece of theater. Uh, I refer to it in the beginning of the show and talk about it, tease it uh, structurally, but I let certain pieces of magic stand as just simple ideas because there's a power in simplicity. There's a power in not making a forced effort to stick a, a square peg in a round hole. You know, there is something special about keeping the message very simple. One of the things I wanted to touch on, you're very, very steadfast against people not revealing the tricks of magic. And I know that you one time filed a suit against somebody to stop him from putting things in the book about the secrets, which he didn't do in the book. And you see an act that's been working for 40 years, like Penn and Teller, whose main theme of their show is showing the magic. Are you okay with it? Well, Penn and Teller are brilliant, first of all. I mean, you know, we, we, we're friends, and uh, you know, I really, they're one of the people that really do good work, you know, and, and lift the art form, I think. Um, the theme, they're kind of, their gimmick for many years, and I call gimmick in quotes, because you know, the, their conceit was that they were really honest, and they're gonna tell the secret because they're honest, and also, but the secrets they were telling, if you look carefully, really didn't hurt 
any, didn't hurt me, didn't hurt anybody in, in my business. They were really doing it in a way that really nobody could remember or nobody could really follow. Uh, you know, I used to have an effect in my show, which is a classic. Dante um, did it in his show called Backstage of the Magician. You'd have the, you'd see from behind the scenes how an illusion worked. You'd see the girl hiding behind a box, crawling into the other box, and then at the end result, even though you saw how it worked, a guy would pop out of the box instead of the girl. So that kind of theme was the Penn & Teller kind of thing where they kind of fool you at the end of something else, even though they've... You think they let you in, but they really don't. But they did it in a very kind of clever way, and these are very, very smart, smart guys. And uh, we have, you know, I went to their Walk of Fame ceremony. I spoke at their Walk of Fame ceremony, um, um, having gotten one, you know, years before, you know. Uh, you were the only person who was on the Walk of Fame up to that point. I opened the door. I opened the door. Houdini had, you know, he did it after his death. I was the first living guy, and now it's the floodgates are open. But, <laughs> but, um, um, I was happy to be there, um, and uh, you know they um, they were on one of my specials. You know, if there was a problem, you know, with with what they were doing, I wouldn't have had them guest on one of my specials. Made a cameo. Um, they, when they're working on something that they're going to work hard on, that uh, they think I might be doing, they'll call me beforehand. They'll say we're working on this. You know, you know, hope. There's not going to be any conflict between us, meaning I hope you're not going to work on something similar, too. I wanted to do my research on meeting with you, so I went to see a few shows. Went to see The Illusionist, went to see Penn & Teller, went to see Chris Angel's new show. What's interesting about Chris Angel is in the show, he's doing Lance Burton's signature bit, which I presume, since they're friends, Lance said, since I'm retiring, why don't you take this bit and revamp it a little bit. I was stunned that he did that. And he made an homage to Lance, which makes it, to my mind, obviously okay when you're acknowledging the person and you're doing an homage to them. But based on his brand, I was stunned that he did that piece. What's your thought about that? I think if you get permission from somebody, it's fair game. You know, we all make our own cho choices as artists. Uh, you know, what what we do, you know, um, there's certain things in my show which aren't mine. I try to revise, put stuff, you know, uh, that makes it more my own, at least have an imprint of what I'm doing to it. And, uh, you know, I think it's fine. It's hard when you're sitting across from the most successful person, not just in magic, but one of the most successful people in the world. I mean, you're up there with Oprah and I'm sitting across from you, but I have the feeling in my mind. Can I shake your hand? Yes. Thank you. Okay. But I have the feeling in my mind that you have regrets. What are they? I don't know. I mean, I think the regrets are things I should have done better. You know, work I should have paid more attention to. Um, you know, uh, spending more time with certain people. I don't think, you know, artistically, I think when you look back at your work, if an actor looks back at their, or a director looks back at a movie, or an actor looks back at me, they go, oh my God, I wish I just did that differently. My regrets have to do with haircuts, mostly. <laughs> you look like you're 30 years old. It's no. insane. You're like Ponce de Leon in the Fountain of Youth. What happened? <laughs> you know, everybody sees when things go well. 
are there situations where you do a trick where something went horribly wrong? Niagara Falls was very scary because I watched a steel um, ramp that was supposed to push us into the us push me into the water. Uh, get twisted in the force of the water and I the night before we did this uh, escape thing um, I was petrified I really thought this was a huge mistake and um, um, the stuntman who was uh, there to um, do some of the camera rehearsals before I were to do it uh, refused to hang from the helicopter because you can't hang in a helicopter over rocks that close. You have to have enough room to, to get yourself out of trouble. Well, a lot of people don't notice that you have something in common with the political election. You too were involved with strange things happening with Russia. You want to explain that to our audience? Huh. Maybe I shouldn't now. <laughs> Maybe it's a mistake, but you can read all about it in the paper. I, you know, my stuff was kidnapped there. <laughs> And uh, we had to get, uh, eventually, what's interesting is I, my show was stuck in Russia, let's put it that way, for many months, couldn't get it out, and uh, I had shows booked, so we had to go to the warehouse, and, and my crew, which is an amazing team, put an hour and a half show together of greatest hits, which we toured with for a while while we got the stuff out of Russia, so that's pretty cool. Also, you were robbed with your assistance at gunpoint. Correct. Yes. And my assistants were smart enough to get the license plate and all that and memorize the license plate. I, like an idiot, showed my pockets empty, <laughs> hid my password, hid my wallet with magic technique, with a gun in my face, like an idiot. So, um, but luckily I got away with it. Uh, I should have just handed it over. But uh, instinctually I just did that, you know. And uh, my, uh, my associates, uh, Kathy Daly, who uh, runs Musha Key, our, our island resort, and the islands of Copperfield Bay, um, they, uh, she was the one that had the wisdom of writing down the, the, the license plate and so forth. And the uh, perpetrators were captured hours later. They lined up cars in a circle to make a circle of lights of automobile cars, and they had us behind a screen and identifying the guys in another car. Uh, crazy, crazy, crazy night. I just want to take a moment to tell you about a documentary I did called I Killed JFK since it's coming up on Kennedy's 100th birthday. It was an amazing documentary. It centered on a man who's been in prison for decades, who's the only person in history who ever admitted to killing JFK. He was the shooter on the grassy knoll. His story, the stories of witnesses there, the stories of everybody from Lee Harvey Oswald's mistress to CIA agents and everyone in between is incredible. You can look at the trailer. You can purchase the documentary. I'm telling you, it will blow you away. The story, this whole situation that's a mystery that's been unsolved for over 50 years will be solved once you buy this documentary at ikilledjfk.com. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody or something. Just tell me whatever comes to mind. It might be one word, might be a sentence, might be a little story. Jim Carrey. Crazy talent. For the Wonderstone movie, he did, uh, uh, we were at the table read of the, the script. And James Gandolfini was across the table from me. 
And Jim Carrey gets to one of his lines and he transforms in the chair, just transforms. It's, it's crazy. And Gandolfini, who's pretty, uh, <laughs> you know, an amazing actor, looks at me and I could just see in his eyes, he's going, I've never seen anything like this in my life. It's like he couldn't, he just couldn't believe what was happening in, in the chair, you know? So it's like, it's a different kind of talent, you know? One is a guy that, you know, Gandolfini was, you know, precision and uh, studied and uh, uh, measured and, um, you know, sometimes not measured, you know, but watching a guy that was just a, a tornado, you know, uh, and uh, uh, I'll never forget it. It was just amazing <laughs> to, to see that happen. Ben Vereen. A force of nature. Ben Vereen was the affirmation of a 16-year-old David Copperfield, an affirmation that, that you could be as good as Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire on stage. You know, growing up and watching movie musicals and watching perfection, perfection on screen, and then seeing Ben Vereen directed and controlled, uh, I mean, in the nicest way, really kind of boxed in by Bob Fosse's genius, was like nothing you could possibly imagine, you know. Uh, on his own, after that, also talented too, Roots and all that stuff. But in Pippin, when he, when Bob Fosse was his kind of, his director and his kind of uh, unifier, to put that much talent filtered through that was uh, an amazing thing that I'll never forget. Frank Sinatra. Well, you know, inspiring. I, I used a lot of his music in my show. I, I base routines to his, you know, to his songs uh, all the way and and uh, come fly with me. And, uh, you know, a career that's uh, inspired me so many ways uh, in so many areas. The idea that you could be on stage and it wasn't just about the song. It was about the lines in his face, you know, as he got older, just the history, all the, the, you're watching something that was so many layers and so rich. And, um, and I got to work with him, you know, um, somewhere in my files is a letter, thank you letter for a charity show I did for him, signed Francis Albert, you know, uh, can't find it. <laughs> Somebody probably stole it. Um, but it's, um, I worked with him right after I did the airplane illusion. And the airplane illusion, vanishing the airplane, was a, a f amazing thing to me because at the time and still now, it's about moving the audience and, you know, giving, you know, pouring my heart out to the audience through using magic as a tool. The airplane was a simple, not simple, but a, a pure magic effect. There was no story. There was no, you know, uh, kind of context. It was, I'm going to vanish an airplane. And when the plane disappear the next day it was like breaking the internet there was no internet obviously but it was like people went crazy you know and i said you like that that's what you you like i like this, this i spent so much time on the other stuff how come you like that and again it was the power of the big idea the power of the simplicity the power of the very simple idea people could get and um sinatra saw it and uh, a few weeks later i did this charity event with him and he said to me, you know, what'd you do with the airplane? <laughs> and I said, well, Mr. Sinatra, I really can't, you know, 
Um, can't tell you. I'll spoil it for you. He says, what'd you do with the earth? <laughs> <laughs> and then he went on stage and sang one of his songs. And Jilly Rizzo, the famous Jilly Rizzo, you know, comes and says, Frank really wants to know how you made the plane disappear. <laughs> I said, well, I, but I don't want to spoil it. The part, you know, he, you, you, he's given me so much, and it would be like ruining a song for him, <laughs> like be sing, like him singing off key for it to spoil the secret. And so uh, Sinatra came off stage and he said, you know, it's all right, kid. It's all right. You don't have to tell me. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, and then he sent me a nice note afterwards. So, so you know, still, you know, in my house, I enter. You entered my house today, and what did you hear playing on the piano? Frank Sinatra. There you go. As loud as you can imagine Frank Sinatra to be. We're testing. We're testing the system here. I've got these pianos in the house that have this uh, system, a piano disc system. Where you can actually have Sinatra play with a piano player who actually played the song, playing the piano in synchronization with him singing. So I think that's pretty great. Oprah Winfrey. Well, you're picking some pretty amazing people here. Um, well, you know, you have to pick amazing people and extraordinary people when you're talking to somebody extraordinary. Uh, you're very kind. Okay, I'll shake your hand. <laughs> I'm really shaking it. You know, she, she is, um, what you see is what you get. She really cares about people. You know, she's real. Does that mean you're going to give away cars in your show? You know, I make him appear. <laughs> <laughs> and disappear. And disappear, yeah. She's like, um, the lesson you learn from Oprah is the fact that um, you think, okay, this must be an act, or how can you keep that going? You know, she obviously knows what's going on in her business, and she, she's, you know, super, one of the smartest people out there. Um, very talented actress you know, great producer. But I think the core of it is she really does care about her employees and she cares about people. When she interviews people, she, you see in her eyes it's it's really real. You can't fake it. You can't fake it. And um, uh, it's, uh, she'll be very honest with you. You know, you'll ask her off camera about people, you know, what, what she really thinks about certain people. And she'll be very honest with you, you know. And... Um, She's a, she's a great, she's a great lady. The late Michael Jackson. I slept at Neverland. I hung out at Neverland. He built an amazing place um, based in dreams and fantasy. Music would come out of the trees and you were in this amazing world. Um, I've kind of was inspired by, uh, by that for sure with my... Um, real estate, you know, with my resort stuff, a lot of detail, you know, I'm, a lot of detail, I'm, I had that anyway, but, but Michael Jackson was just, well, he was a genius, you know, he was, a, he was a genius. He was, um, when you see him pop out of the stage, when he pop, you know, that they call it the toaster. That's because of me, because that's, he was afraid to do it. I worked on that tour that year and he wouldn't do it. And if I did it, it would be okay. <laughs> so I was the guinea pig for Michael Jackson and the toaster. When you see the guy pop out of the stage, boom, I think you talk about um, um, Kevin Hart. You know, the, he, I think, did it in his show. Um, but you could thank me for that. <laughs> I take credit for <laughs> giving him the, the, the coolionis to jump out of the stage like that on this machine. Um, the, um, I wrote songs for him. 
I sang and auditioned songs for him, which never happened. But he'd sit there and he'd be an amazing listener. You know, all these people you mentioned have one thing in common. Streisand too, same thing. And Warren Beatty too, incredible. The exact same thing. They will make you feel like you're the smartest person in the room, even though they're probably smarter than you. They will be sponges and listen and look at you like they really want to know what's in your head to download every bit of information they can get from you to be better and smarter. And it's an amazing talent. And, you know, your parents tell you that empty barrels rattle the loudest, you know. Um, The Warren Beatties and the Barbara Streisands and the Michael Jacksons will sit there and squint their eyes at you, squint, and like cock their heads, you know, towards you and ask you questions, making you feel really, really smart to really get smarter themselves, you know, and, um, and it's an amazing quality. I've tried to learn that. I, I'm inquisitive. I rather learn than be interviewed. I'm having a nice time, by the way. But, you know, I really, you know, before we started, I didn't have much time with you, but I wanted to hear about you first, you know, to hear, you know, where's the background and what is it, you know, and does you, you've got, um, I know, amazing, amazing stories yourself. You know, if we didn't have a, you know, recording machine, I would spend time with that, you know, but... That's what I learned from those people, and um, or got reaffirmed. Let's put it that way: that, that I was on the right path to 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 uh, to uh, keep doing that. Your greatest holy shit moment story that comes to mind that no one would ever believe. Something happened yesterday. Um, a magician builder named Craig Dickens came to my house because we were working on an effect. And he walked through the door, he says, I've got something for you. And he hands me, he has all this lump of old magic props, and he hands me a sword. And I kind of got a little chilled. Something about this sword, I remembered. And I looked at the pieces, and he said, this is the box, this is the sword box that you used in The Magic Man when you were 18. And I said, and he said, I'm going to give it to you. And I said, oh my God. He says, but no, you don't understand. I got it from the producers years ago. I've had it for 40 years. And I rented it to be used by John C. Riley in Boogie Nights. <laughs> I'm a big John C. Riley's fan and, and, uh, and uh, stepbrother's fan. But in the ending scene of boogie nights this same sword box was used my my little box i used when i was 18 years old and it's now in my living room but it was like oh my god it's one of those things you you look at this thing and you you know you look at and you touch it you know paul winchell after he passed away i got all of his items his puppets and his daughter who he had it was april winchell who was a amazing radio and voiceover person, a lot of Disney cartoons. When she looks at her father's stuff in my museum, she walks up to the items. She grabs them and smells them. Try to smell the moment, try to go back to her childhood when she had a good relationship with her father. 
And it was one of those moments with this sword box, seeing this thing and looking, trying to remember the screws and the thing, being an 18-year-old scared 18-year-old kid, having this prop that I did in the show where I sang and danced that, um, and seeing it after 40 years, and knowing that it has been used in a number of movies, in the background and actually used in the movies, of things that I, really good movies, you know, Boogie Nice is terrific. So, wow, it was cool. Your proudest moment in show business. You know, for me, every illusion process to get to an end result that's satisfactory is a long process. That's when people steal things from you or take it. It's very painful because it's not just a joke. And I say just a joke, but a joke also is a lot of time and effort to make it right. But it's not only words. It's invention. It's lighting. It's... It's music. It's making a technology, new technology work. So I have to really invent something new. When I go through a process of like that and people not liking it and finally liking it, that becomes the proudest moment. And it happens every few years. The piece you saw in the show last night with a large object that appears over your heads, people didn't like it a month ago. And they liked it in the past few days because I made certain changes. Was it good? It was holy shit moment great. Okay. I'd never seen anything like that indoors in my entire life and I never will again. Okay. Well, thank you. Remember, a month ago, it was struggling. So those moments when you go through stuff that's not supposed to work and they do work becomes really a proud moment you know if a tv special does well or you know you meet an idol or you uh there's so many of those moments you know it sounds like oh my god there's been so many things in my life oh my gosh it's not like that it's like they're all wonderful and when you see things that happen to your family kids are amazing non-show business things which top everything obviously when you see a child transform um but when something doesn't work and finally it does work, uh, I think every artist will tell you that that's a really amazing feeling to finally get something to work when it didn't work to begin with, but you still believed in it. So those moments are the proudest moments, I think. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. It's the constant struggle to get respect for what I do. And it doesn't stop. It continues. Um, getting respect for an art form which doesn't have a slot in the press. There's no column about, this column's about movies. This column's about technology. This column's about Broadway. There's, 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 there's broadcasts about all of those things. But there's nothing really, a place that magic is, you know, We'll, we'll place in those things. So you have to get in another way, respect in that way. When people, artists that you respect, see your show and love what you do, you see on their face, oh my God, that was really, I was moved by that or that was really great. You hope it lasts. You hope they leave the theater and talk about it. You hope they, they do it. But, you know, there was a book called Respect for Acting. I think Uta Hagen wrote it. And, um, I always like that title, you know, Respect for Magic. 
George Méliès and Robert Houdin got respect because they were inventing technology. Méliès used the cinema as a magic effect and eventually turned it into storytelling. If you saw the movie Hugo, I have all of Houdin's stuff, all of Méliès's stuff in my museum. It's incredible. And when film directors come and see the Méliès stuff, they start to get teared up. They start to weep. I say, why are you crying? He says, that's the beginning of our, my life. If this magician didn't tell stories with the cinema, maybe I wouldn't be here, you know? So that's respect. And, you know, being able to take magic and, and, and do things with it that hasn't been done before is very re rewarding for me when it works. <laughs> when it doesn't work, it's not so rewarding. But um, when it doesn't get respect, when it doesn't get respect, it makes me work twice as hard. And, um, and that still happens to this day. Last question. What advice would you have for the young artist <laughs> with a dream, with people telling him that it's never going to happen, or her, and how they take their skills, their dreams, and create the kind of career that you have? I mean, I talk about passion, preparation and persistence in my show for not just magic just for everything and what I mean by that is you know you have to be passionate about something you have to find something you're passionate about and preparation is everything you have to be educated about every aspect of what you're doing preparation means know how to market it preparation means make sure it's honest um, preparation means really over, over study, over practice, over learn about what can go wrong w with everything. And then persistence is because with all those things, you will fail unless you keep going because every day there's going to be an obstacle in front of your face. There's going to be somebody saying no, somebody who might be jealous of you, somebody who just doesn't get it. Um, you know, I think, you know, putting in, in other words, make sure that you have a voice of your own. Make sure you have a special voice. Something that you're trying, if you're dealing with technology, make sure you're, 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 what you're doing has a unique flavor or form or, 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 or something that could be noticeably different. What's that voice? Why is it important? And then figure it out. You know, once you know what it is, learn everything you can and back everything up and then charge ahead because uh, all those no's can be turned into yeses. You can read not just my story, but every movie that is going to fail, every startup company that was turned down and every uh, feature that was rejected and every actor that was told, you know, the Fred Astaire story comes to mind, you know, too skinny, not that attractive, you know, losing his hair, you know you know, that famous memo, you know, which I hope it's real, you know, uh, I'm not sure that was empowering to him, but it, you know, certainly they were wrong. And, you know, you don't have to be the best looking, you know, you don't have to be the tallest, you don't have to be the thinnest, you don't have to be, you know, uh, the smartest. You just have to uh, really work hard and prepare and uh, then keep charging forward. David Copperfield, this has been one of the most amazing 
interviews I've ever had. And you're an incredible man and uh, an inspiration to everybody who gets to see you and get to know you. Thank you so much. I'm humbled, humbled, humbled. You've got a great, what you've done, uh, the, the group you brought together is pretty, pretty amazing. You should be really proud, besides all your other accomplishments. So thank you very much. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Barry Kahn, like the name Barry, from Herndon, Virginia. Congratulations, Barry. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on HDR4, five-star review on July 19, 2013, entitled Zen Barry. The review reads, quote, I cannot get enough of us inside the biz stories. Please keep it up and give us more. I will do that. Thank you, HDR4. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> you get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They it's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Johnny. 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.